Welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's Soundscapes podcast. In this edition, we explore race, culture and identity with the PINS event, Where We At, moderated by Santilla Chinepe. Um, Hi everyone, thanks for coming. Before we start, I just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land on which we meet today and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and any Elders who are with us tonight. Um, And I just want to say it's really amazing to go from making a website in um, a lounge room in Tasmania to having an event in the Melbourne Recital Centre. And we thank every one of you for coming and um, we're really excited to share the voices and opinions of the panellists that we have for you tonight. So enjoy. Just going to get them out now. (laughs) Hello. Um, Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we meet this evening, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. And I'd also like to acknowledge any elders that might be present with us this evening. So before I begin introducing the panellists for where we're at, I was just wondering if you could just help me big a give round of applause, a big round of applause to Nkechi and Lucy for organising this event. I think, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the pin and how it originated and how it started, but I think it's a very wonderful story of two young women who were curious about identity, trying to figure out a place for themselves and created the space to have these conversations and meet people that were asking similar things. And I think that in the 12 months or so that they've created this, they've just done amazing, amazing work and they really should be commended for for this platform. So uh, identity and race and culture, I think we all think about that sort of stuff and you know I think identity is one of the ways in which we perceive and express ourselves Um, and there are many factors that you know help us I guess make sense of who we are Um, and you know everything to do with age and height and you know gender play a factor into that but race and culture can also be quite important and many of us struggle with those sorts of things and here in Australia I think we're still we're only at the beginnings of trying to unpack what that looks like and also understanding that diversity is diverse Um, and so tonight um, I've got a group of people who will help lead that discussion and again as much as you know um, we're talking broadly about race and identity and culture a lot of these experiences are very subjective um, and hopefully that does come across. So it's definitely recognising that even within diversity, it is diverse. So to help me, I will begin by introducing each of the panellists onto the stage. And my first panellist is uh, Amma, Am- Ama, Ama Rachman, and he's an Australian comedian and writer who's concerned with politics, race relations and the war on terror. He's performed sold out shows at some of the world's largest festivals, such as the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe. His work has been covered by media outlets such as the Huffington Post, NBC, Slate, Colourlines, Afropunk, Alternate, Vice and Essence magazine. He supported legendary stand-ups such as Dave Chappelle and performed alongside critically acclaimed hip-hop artists Brother Ali and Lowkey. In 2014, he was named one of The Guardian newspaper's top 10 live comedy shows of the year. And in 2016, he was the first ever artist in residence at the annual conference of the American Studies Association in Toronto. And he's appeared in conversation with public intellectuals, artists and activists such as Akala, Dr. Cornell West, Professor Angela Davis and Naomi Klein. 
You're like a bit of an overachiever. <laughs> Usually they cut the bio down. I just email it to I, them, but. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> so one, awkward to sit through while someone just reads I know. <laughs> but the one thing that doesn't come up in your bio is how you identify. Uh, generally un Australian. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Yeah. We, we'll, we'll, this is that one email I didn't read clearly about how we were going to introduce fine, ourselves. That's fine, that's fine. If that's, if that's how you're choosing to, to identify yourself in this context tonight, you're not picking anything, just generally un-Australian. Wait, other categories? You can pick whatever you want. Uh, Muslim? Okay. I feel like I'm getting close to the right answer, <laughs> but not. Like, that's fine. We'll bring on the next person. So, uh, I failed. failed. <laughs> you, pretty Wrong. Much, pretty much. Um, the next panelist is Carly Findlay, and Carly is an award-winning writer, speaker, and appearance activist. Her work has been published on The Age, The ABC, The Guardian, Daily Life, Blog Her, and Frankie magazine. She has a Master of Communication from RMIT University. She recently appeared on the Facial Differences episode of ABC TV's you can't ask that, in which she chatted about the questions that she often gets asked about by the public. She also appeared in a new theatre show called Quipping's Present Love Show, in which people with disabilities took to the stage at the Malt House to explore difference and disability and love in all its variations. She's spoken at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, Emerging Writers' Festival, the University of Melbourne, the University of Western England, and her husband's Cubs group, <laughs> to name a few. Carly is currently writing her first book to be published by HarperCollins next year. Hello. Hello. <laughs> You're someone else that also didn't necessarily have what you identify with. Sorry, I didn't do my homework. No, that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Do you, do you identify, is there an identity that you sort of subscribe to? Yeah, a disabled woman, a proud disabled woman. Yeah. Um, I guess in recent years, perhaps a woman of colour. I don't identify as white because I'm red. But my, um, <laughs> that's okay to laugh, um, <laughs> but my mum is a coloured South African and my dad is a white Englishman and they came to Australia in uh, 1981 because of the apartheid regime and they couldn't get married there so they came here and I was born here. So I grew up in a really white, white bread town um, so, and, and I don't really um, have much experience of kind of a South African culture other than food right. and it was much more of a white upbringing but I don't identify as a white colour or yeah. race I guess. Yeah. yeah fair enough I look forward mm -hmm. to unpacking more of that as the Thank conversation you. continues um, but I'll introduce our next panellist Remy and Remy is one of the fastest rising hip-hop acts in Australia as well as performing their own sold-out headline tours across Europe and Australia Remy have also shared the stage with Kendrick Lamar, Danny Brown, Vic Mensa, Della Soul, Joey Badass, Black Alicious, some of these names I can't pronounce, but I'll keep going. Uh, and here he is. Hello, Remy. <laughs> I like the coconut water. I've got coconut oil in my hair too. So oh, did so you really? Yeah. Going for the whole thing? Yes, indeed. Um, what do you identify as? Uh, that's really hard. That's a hard question to ask. I was talking to my housemate about it before. Um, I think it's consistently evolving. Um, but right now, I guess I would have to say like black cis male. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Here for two seconds, man. Come have nice things. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's always like evolving. It's something that I hope continues to evolve because I, like, I'm too young and previously and currently too ignorant to have known everything that I need to know about myself, my surroundings, the people that I represent, the people I'm in contact with, all those things. So, yeah. I mean, the real, the real answer to it is identify as me because I have to figure out my own place here, um, what it is inside of me that's good, what is bad, how I'm affected, how I oppress people, how I'm oppressed by people, and um, how I move forward with that knowledge. I like that. Yeah. Cool. My answer was so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> Man, I'm glad you went first, man. I didn't know they were gonna ask us straight away. It's like irredeemable now. Like everyone would just. You come might and get say a second chance at it. Just keep thinking about it. At the very uh, end. <laughs> um, our next panelist is Sukhjit Kaul Khalsa, and she's a first-generation Australian Sikh spoken word artist, educator, performer, and human rights reformer based in Melbourne. Sukhjit is passionate about diversity and the importance of visibility in the performing arts and inherently merges her advocacy background with the arts. Her work predominantly provokes conversations around Australian identity, feminism, cultural confusions and the power of uncomfortable conversations. Within a short period, Sukhjit has gone from performing at the Opera House for the Australian Poetry Slam competition in 2014 to performing on national television for Australia's Got Talent and most recently she was a speaker at TEDx UWA. Hey, Subji. Hey. <laughs> so what do you identify as? Smelly cat, <laughs> smelly cat, it's not your fault. I reckon a, like a Sikh Phoebe. More hairy, more brown. Colour? Yeah, no, 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 that's great. I like it. I can, like I can, it. can I get closer to you? Because I can't see you. Your head's in the way. Sorry. <laughs> I've ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take for you to come up with that identity? Manal, um, on the tram ride. I lost my licence, so I took a tram today. I'm going to make that known to everyone. Right. I lost my licence. I'm a criminal. I just feel really shit about that. So yeah, I took a tram and Manal and I were talking and we were like, oh, I don't know. I was, because I'm so used to being the, every time there's a body positivity campaign, it's like, oh, Sigrid, we need a hairy person. And it's just like, oh, don't really want to be that. Because <laughs> most of the time you're not really like, maybe we'll get into this later, but like you're, you get reminded of these things, mm -hmm. that you're a woman or you're hairy or you're Sikh or you're brown or you're Muslim or whatever. But it's most of the time, I don't know, sometimes I walk into a room or a space or a party or hanging out with my housemate and I don't really feel like I am that. I'm just, just me, whatever that is. You're just Phoebe. Yeah, I'm just Phoebe. I'm a smelly cat. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Our next panellist, Sasha Sarago. She is uh, a proud Aboriginal woman um, and she is also of African-American, Malay, Mauritian and Spanish descent. She's a former model. She grew up frustrated by the invisibility of women of colour in fashion and media and tired of importing overseas publications to see reflections of herself. Um, Sasha had an epiphany. And in 2011, she founded Ascension Magazine, which is Australia's first Indigenous and ethnic women's lifestyle magazine, which I think is awesome. Um, and this magazine is a new dialogue of cultural identity and self-representation and a haven for women of colour to see, hear and know themselves. 
uh, a lover of new beginnings, Sasha is trying her hand as a writer, director and producer for a series of digital projects designed to capture the diversity of who she is and her imaginations of how it could be. Welcome. <laughs> So far, you're like the only person that sort of had their cultural background and ethnicity in their bio. Is that important to you, like to sort of assert your identity? Absolutely. Like growing up, it's always where do you come from? Who are you? What's your background? And I just thought, this is who I am. Um, I right now identify as an awkward black girl, <laughs> Issa Rae's character, and it just lumps it all together, like my experience of defining my blackness and all this ethnicity and not fitting into stereotypes. So I just think it's really important to let people know, like, where do you come from, who you are um, from the outset, and it kind of bypasses all those millions of questions. Yeah, I like it. It's great. <laughs> and last but not least, Abe, Abe Nuke. He is a spoken word MC and author whose craft developed from the realisation of the freedom of speech. Sudanese-born Abe was illiterate when he and his family arrived in Australia in 2004 under the UN High Commission of Refugees. Since then, liberated from the nightmares of illiteracy, Abe's now an author, performer of written words, facilitator of creative performance and writing workshops. Abe's not here. Okay. <laughs> Abe is running on African time, but okay. <laughs> Um, we will proceed with that, Abe, and hopefully he'll be able to join us very soon. But um, I'd just like to begin by, I guess, picking up where Remy uh, started with the conversation around this idea of constantly evolving identity that you're never really quite fixed. Have any of you ever felt that way, where you've kind of sort of thought that you were one thing and then as life proceeds, it's evolved? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I never identified as disabled for many years, you know, and I guess it was part internalised ableism. Um, you know, I, I'm not disabled like those people because we don't have the same disability. But as I learnt about the social model of disability, so society's the disabling barrier rather than the body, and as I met more disabled people, I realised, hey, we've got things in common. Like, my friend might be in a wheelchair, but we both experience these same barriers of discrimination, of, you know, finding it hard in employment, finding taxi drivers that won't take us, etc. So then, um, yeah, I really, I really identified. And, of course, the impairment stuff as well, you know, having a skin condition that's very painful. Um, it can be disabling. But, uh, yeah, for a long time, and not until I was sort of in my mid-20s did I dis identify as disabled. And I sort of thought that perhaps um, because I didn't get any government benefits when, like, by having a disability, that I wasn't disabled because there's that kind of box-ticking exercise. But then, I don't know, I, I realise that I can be and it's okay to be and that I'm proud once I found my tribe and once I'm doing my own thing and identifying. But then the people that tell me um, that I'm not disabled are all really uncomfortable with the word. You know, oh, no, you're, you're not disabled. Every time I write about something and they say, don't call yourself disabled, that's a real insult. But it's them with the issue. Mm. Mm. Have any of you ever felt that way, that you can lay claim to an identity because you didn't feel that you... You could? I felt for me, um, not until I came back from living in the States, coming to Australia, that I could identify as an Aboriginal woman until I was like, say, maybe 22, 23, confidently. 
because I didn't grow up on country or with cousins and family members, I felt like I wasn't Aboriginal enough, if that makes sense, uh, trying to navigate my own identity and realising that I'm not alone in that journey, considering Australia's you know, history of colonisation, that there was atrocities and genocide that took place where my family couldn't practice culture, so it wasn't passed down. And to reconcile that, because I just thought, oh, I don't look like everybody else because I've got mixed ancestry. Um, I didn't know certain cultural practices. So now I'm like excited about who I am. Like once you find yourself and you retrace that history and you know the truth, that opens the door for you to really love yourself and accept this is not any fault of mine. Mm but I can make a change with that. Mm. So now I'm a you know, proud, judable, Wajinbari dingy woman with all these other you know, ancestry in my blood and, and it's okay. Mm. Sukjita, I've seen you nodding, do you sort of... Oh, I just smell like <laughs> reflex. Just like one of those like, you know those like clowns that you put like... Anyways, so um, <laughs> I, um, I feel like I don't identify as Indian. Um, and to be Sikh and to be Indian for me are two very different things. So it's really interesting when um, I grew up in Perth and a lot of the communities, such as the Indian or the Chinese community, I accepted in, in Perth, in WA, because you just sit down, put your head down and just you're hard working, you don't question the system. So I never really like resonated with that, that whole notion of, and I think maybe my parents were a little bit like that. They were like, oh nah, it's fine. Like just, just be happy with what you have, be grateful, be grateful. Um, but then, yeah, I feel like being, being a Sikh is quite opposite of that. And it is to be a fighter, is to be a warrior, is to be um, a feminist, it is to be standing up, you know, next to all those that also are experiencing any form of discrimination. Um, and, and like, you know, you grow up like talking about, I know like the G word, God is so like forbidden in, in Australia, but like I, the only reason why I had to talk about being a Sikh in every bloody like PowerPoint presentation in like school for like any assignment was like, this is me, these are my pillars of Sikhism. Like that was like this thing that like automatically just came out of me. And now when I look back at that and I'm like, oh, what's that? Um, What's that monologue now? What's that thing that I regurgitate out? It used to be what my parents would say. It used to be what was filtered down to me or what the community wanted out there. But now it's me going, looking back at that and going, no, that's actually not what I am. I'm an outlier in this community that I thought I was a representation of. And it's only this year that I probably realised that. Mm. Ame, do you, do you feel the same? Do you closely identify with your religion or your ethnicity, race, culture? Would, do you... Yeah, like I guess it's a mix of, of all of them, but I think with race, <clears throat> race and culture, I mean, definitely like growing up in Australia, I think the first, like my first memories of identity are, you know, kind of defined by how people treated me. You know, like when you grow up in your family, like no one teaches you that you're brown or, or whatever, like you're just the same as everyone else in your family. Then you're put in a culture that, where you're different and you're reminded very clearly that you're not part of that culture. Uh, and then kind of the rest of your life is deciding whether or not you're going to be comfortable with that and be the thing that's different or like slowly chip away and suppress as much as you can because you can never get rid of all of it, but as much as you can to be more like, more like everyone else. Um, so I think that's, yeah, and that's how you evolve growing up is kind of just deciding like, like, am I going to be what, you know, what it's easy to be or am I going to hang on to, 
to what's, you know, my history or my identity. Mm. It's, but it's hard trying to be like someone else, though. It yeah, it's terrible. To reject the culture or the identity, it's really... I think people think it's the comfortable thing to do, mm. but it's, Tiring. like, it's a mm. lot. You have to be very violent to yourself and yeah. uh, who you are to, to achieve that. Mm. Remy, I'm curious to know, from your perspective, obviously growing up with parents from different races, mm. how did you make sense of your identity? I didn't. <laughs> um, I don't know, my, my whole world up until probably like really, so I started making music and apart from my pops and my little brother was white, the whole thing, like my neighborhood where I went to school, which was 45 minutes away. Um, and like the entire Nigerian community is way out because that's where they put all the Africans. So apart from like Somalians and the city and stuff like that. But so it was quite, quite segregated. My whole life was segregated. So there wasn't really, Outside of pop culture, like that I digested, like whether it was like Usher or um, like, you know, I don't know, Outcast or some, something like that. Outside of that, it was like, it wasn't really like anything as far as like an easy option, you know what I mean? Like to integrate was the only option, you know? Um, well, as far as I was concerned, it's never the only option, but that was what I was presented with really. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's been, that's why I said at the beginning, I have to identify as me right now, because it's just like, that's what you really have to be okay with, right? At the end of all this stuff, you know, because whatever the community is um, that you're a part of, everybody's gonna have their own opinion. And at the end of the day, as long as you're doing right and you're right within yourself, then you'll be able to move through that community. But if you, you know, if you're trying to fit into any kind of box, you know, any box that's there for you, any stereotype, no matter, regardless of how it's perpetuated, um, you're gonna lose, as far as I'm concerned. That's very true. I guess I'm curious, in terms of growing up in Australia and figuring out what your identity is and making sense of it, did any of you at any point kind of realise that your race was a hindrance in terms, I mean, Emma, you talked about growing up and everyone in your family looks like you. So, you know, the way you present to the world is sort of normal until you get into the world. And I want to know at what point that happened in your childhoods when you kind of went, oh, actually, I might be different based on how the world was re responding to you. I'll start with you, Sajit. It was when like a year eight boy <laughs> looked at my short shorts and was like, whoa, you've got hairy legs. And I think that's when I realised I was different. And that was year eight, so it's quite a long time to not realise. And maybe because around me, no one was really treating me that different. Or maybe it was happening, like, on Australia Day and, like, random... You know, oh, yes, of course it was happening, but I didn't know what it was. It was scary, but I didn't know... what I couldn't articulate what it was until high school, I think. And that's when... I like used it, it's weird, like I was this weird nerd that would use that material for art from a very young age. So it's, that's how I learned, that's how I processed. I'd like write monologues and then the character would be me. <laughs> and then that character at the end would be like, oh, okay, maybe that's how you should do things. Well, that's what it means, yeah. What about for you, Sasha? I was just thinking, um, 11 years old was the time that I knew I was different I was at a friend's birthday party, best friend's birthday party, and it was her older sister that came up to me and 
she said, you know, what, are you, what is your background? And I said, I'm Aboriginal. And she just had this expression on her face and I was very shocked and trying to process it. And it was very confronting. And she came back with, funnily enough, too pretty to be Aboriginal. And I didn't understand what she meant. And it was the first time that I felt so vulnerable and ashamed of being Aboriginal because it was like this stain that was smeared on me automatically. And to be the only black child at this birthday party and to have that statement assaulted on me, like it just, yeah, it made me realize that, okay, when it comes to being Aboriginal, there's always gonna be something negative behind it. You know, learning at a young age that that's your journey and how do you choose to navigate in that space. Mm. So that was the first time that I knew I was in for it because before then, because I guess maybe my features and what Australians think Aboriginal people look like, I wasn't on the radar of being Aboriginal. So I was young, I still had you know, a bit of a or strong American accent. So I was like, oh, what are you? You look different, you know, exotic, <laughs> whatever goes through their minds. Uh, so that was you know, my first entry point into, oh, okay, so people visually look at me a certain way, but they don't know my ancestry. Mm. So be prepared, have your armor on. Mm. Um, and as people of color, we kind of know how to gauge people's responses before it even comes out. So you'll have an expression or a statement or trying to diffuse the situation. Mm. So 11 years old was the first time I was, yeah, put in that position. Mm. What about for you, Remy? Uh, I think I was like four years old when kids said that my skin was the color of shit. That's why I knew. Right. Mm. <laughs> that was it. Carly? Um, well, I've got two different experiences, I guess, from the first time I realised I was different, that I had a skin condition, that I was red, was when my mum sent me to daycare one day when she had to work or something. Um, and kids were, you know, teasing me. They weren't used to me, like my preschool friends or whatever they were, were, because I never really had friends. So I remember being like punched or pinched or hit or whatever by kids there because I was different. But when I was um, in primary school, uh, I guess the race stuff came in. So my face is very red and my body isn't, but it doesn't mean it's less painful. And my arms are not as red as my face. And I remember kids, you know, saying to me, oh, but if you didn't have your condition, you'd be white, right? And I would, like, they never identified that I could possibly be black, even though my mum's black. So there was this assumption that I'm just going to be white because that's all they saw in themselves because it, it was, you know, such a small town. I reckon for a long time, my mum might have only been the only black person in the town. And so, um, yeah. So, you know, probably six, then race three maybe for disability. But I kind of always denied it as well because I didn't see anyone like me. So I didn't know that, you know, like I was, I, yeah, so I sort of denied it. And um, I think maybe I remember my mum saying she had this beautiful portrait of, a, of an African woman painted and she said, someone can paint you like that. And I remember saying, oh, but 
she wouldn't paint me red, would she? Like, as if I wouldn't want to be. Like, I completely wanted to be denied of that. Whereas now, you know, I've been and photographed and stuff and I'm, you know, make sure you don't airbrush. I need to be just like I am in real life. So, yeah. Amir? Uh, yeah, probably like five or six when you came to Australia. Same kind of comments, you're the colour of poo. Like, and but, you know, like, that's when you real like that's something you can't change, and you know even at that age you're like ah oh, okay I'm like I'm stuck with this, um, and I'll never forget like I, I always remember this conversation now because it didn't make sense to me at the time, but I was yeah I was five or six and I was like complaining to my dad that like you know the kids were mean to me, and um, with two things so my parents would be like I'd say oh like they said this to me and my parents were like well you say something back and I was like. There's nothing you can say back. Like, even at that age, you're like, you, you know, like there's nothing in your arsenal that can hurt them the same way. And then like one night I was, I was telling my dad and he was like, oh, you know what you need to do is like, be like twice as good as them and study really hard. I was like, this is the wackest advice ever. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying to make friends. He's telling me to study more. And it didn't like, and I just didn't realize until like much, much, much later that he was like, kid, like this is gonna be your life and like, this is the best weapon that I can give you for survival. Because our parents, like, you know, migrant parents, to, like, I cannot imagine the kinds of things that they endured. Because they were just like, yeah, like, I'm never going to be from here. Left everything behind. We're just going to survive to get, you know, get our kids through, through whatever. So, like, that was the advice that they gave us. You know, they didn't have, like, Twitter and <laughs> Tumblr and microaggressions. No, they were just like, <laughs> don't get fired. Don't get kicked out of school. Don't get arrested. Just, you know. It's interesting that first conversation that you have with parents about race. I remember I was 12. This was when I was growing up in Perth and our neighbour uh, was a part of a Hungarian seller scout situation. So he worked as a mercenary for an army in Zimbabwe, which is why he was, he had these racial ideas. And so he used to refer to us as Kafirs and in South Africa and in the southern part of Africa, that's the version of the N-word. And so he would uh, water our house, he'd fill it with water, like when we'd be out of the house, cause it'd be very hot, so he'd leave the windows open and he'd sort of put the hose pipe through the window and our house would just be like, just in water. And I remember one day my parents' car had the word kaffir written on it. And I remember talking to my parents, I'm like, what is this? And I remember my parents having to have the conversation that they never wanted to have with my brother and I, because I think they thought for the longest time they'd been able to protect us. So I'm curious about the conversations that you guys had with your parents, if you ever had those conversations and what they'd said to you. Sukji, did you, did your parents sit you down? It's, um, the experience that you're talking about just brought back a memory that I ever, have not thought about since I was like four. And like every time you put like your washing out, um, not you, but me, but like <laughs> every time we'd put our washing out, the whitewash, um, the house behind us, the guys would um, put tomato sauce and like um, chuck stuff on it. And, and I wouldn't really know what was going on. Like I just, like, it's just weird when you look back at those memories. And then the other day I was in Perth and um, we were doing like this poetry thing and my mum came along and the discussions we were having afterwards, she was sharing all these experiences that like I'd never known, like before I was born, um, the experiences that they had on Australia Day and like just the details. And one thing that she really emphasised on was her allies. So like those random people on the bus that would actually stand up and kind of uh, speak up 
and she remem and she remembers their names, like she remembers the details of what they were wearing, like, and it's just like, oh, there is something going on there of what gets passed down, and I think. But for me, like, it's hard because the little gender thing kind of seeps through. Like, it's not just about my parents going, oh, let's talk about racism. It's more like overhearing my dad talking to my mum going, oh, why is she really involved in all this leadership stuff? Why does she want to be a leader? Why is it necessary? Like, why is she, um, you know, getting... She's getting too much attention on these issues. Like, she should just stay quiet. And I think those things is what I remember over the other stuff because I think... You've all caught me at an interesting time. I'm going through a very interesting transition in my brain where, like, I'm just frustrated that I've spent most of um, my life doing the education, doing the awareness, talking about the Sikhs and the terrorists and all that, but I never really thought about the female identity. I've just been, I've just been putting that on the side. I've just been putting the male Sikh identity on the forefront. And then, yeah... And then there's obviously a lot of internal community stuff that happens that you can't really go on like ABC Radio National and talk about because then the Pauline Hansons of the world are like, see, this is why you should fuck off. And you're like, oh, nah, like misogyny is everywhere. But it's just hard to be able to fully like, you know, like it's fully say what I really want to say because like you were saying, the armour and then the suppressing and the censoring, like literally just now, like before I'm walking in, I like I was like, oh hey, like what's the deal with like censorship? Like what can I not? And she was like, dude, say whatever you want. And I'm like, oh, I don't know though. Like it's still there's a lot of fear. There's lots of fear of what we put out into the world, whatever art you put out into the world, or whatever you say. Mm. <laughs> I didn't answer any of your questions, but <laughs> Remy. I'm curious to find out what that conversation was like in your household, because obviously your parents came from different races, mm -hmm. you're mixed race. Yeah. Your parents don't know what it's like to exist in the world like you. Mm. What, was the, what were those conversations like? Um, no offence, it's pretty useless. Yeah. <laughs> um, Are your parents here? You know, oh, right. This is my beautiful parents. <laughs> But I will explain. I will. Thank you, Mom. Uh, but um, I'll explain why they were useless. You know, <laughs> no, it's for real. I mean, like because obviously for my pops, you know, growing up in Nigeria, I, like I just came back from Nigeria with my daddy, and I saw where he went to school. I saw what he had to like, tiny, tiny fractions of the things that he went through to be here, you know. So to be here and then for him to go through everything that he went when he was here, like he told me a very interesting story about when he was in Tasmania, the first time he ever went to a church. He sat in the aisle and the aisle in front of him and the aisle behind him were completely empty as well as his own aisle. People refused to sit next to him. And my pops continued to overcome. And then he was at university he challenged his teacher, then everything that he did. Given my dad has a PhD and has written five books on satellite engineering, he challenged his teacher. Um, from that moment, he would not get over a pass. Then all of the people in his class, or some of the people in his class copied his, um, his work um, and changed the name on it, and they got high distinctions in it. And so, like, these are the things that my pops has gone through. So he's gone through poverty, um, almost being assassinated in Nigeria before coming here to have me. So 
struggle, there's perspective in struggle. And like you were saying before, you know what I mean? Like there's no way to articulate this. There's no books on how to raise a mixed race baby, you know? As far as Pops is concerned, it's like, you know, if I don't know the language, if I speak um, articulately and um, affluently, and I'm light-skinned, then I'm gonna be fine, you know what I mean? But that's not how Australia works. Um, and what that did was pretty much just participate in the continued colonization and genocide of this country is so used to, because now I don't know my language and I didn't grow up around my community. And then from my mom's side, like, mom's white, like, what's she gonna do? You know what I mean? Like, really, what's she gonna do? Um, we learn together now, which is a beautiful thing. I'm really glad that I have a mom that is willing to learn and be at things like this, you know, to move forward. Because, I mean, you look at the rest of white Australia and it's like, look how empty this is. Look at the seats that are empty. Look at, like, I'm like, oh, recital center, dope. <laughs> I didn't even know they had this room. Was this like the closet for the recital center or something? <laughs> you know, but that's, that's it, you know what I mean? And like, you know, and then on top of that, you know, like no diss to the white people in this room, but most of the people of color in here are gonna go home and reflect on everything that we, we say tonight and apply it to their own situations and all those kind of things. And a lot of people in here are just gonna be like, oh my God, it was so great that I went to go and see that. You know, so to have a mom that I go home and have conversations of reflection and critical thinking with is exceptional. But as a child, you know, it's again, like I guess the difference Actually, it's not the difference because we didn't explore that, but when I got cold shit and like I found out that that's what my life was now, that was just immediate internalizing, you know? And that's just how it continued to happen. You internalize those things and you become, especially for me, I mean shit, like I, my job is to talk and rap, like to yell at people and get them to get wild. And that's what I've been since I was a kid. But that was something that was like, you know, constrained. From, Cause you're scared, you know what I mean? Like you're scared to open your mouth. Like, you know, you literally had your ass beat for when you decide, even just chilling, you know what I mean? Like just chilling, like, you know, so um, you got to figure it out for yourself, you know what I mean? And that's why it's important um, that we have so many beautiful people of color, black people out here, um, especially artists, because that's usually who they put all this stuff on, you know, like when they want to talk to like uh, about a white issue, they'll get the guy with the PhD and they want a black issue, they'll go and get a rapper, you know. <laughs> um, but it's really important that we're out here having these conversations, being open because there's so many children out there who don't have community, who don't have self-love, self-determination and they need it, they deserve it, you know, because we can't succeed, we can't even begin to build and grow our communities that are so fractured and destroyed without having these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I'd just like to pause to just give a shout out to your parents. Carly, you also grew up in a similar situation like Remy. Both your parents are from different races. What was that like? What um, well, I guess on reflection, my, you know, my parents loved each other enough to come to another country to get married. And it's a little bit like what's happening now with the marriage equality um, issue. And 
where people are going overseas to get married because they can't hear you know, in LGBTI, but you know, that was a racial issue then. So I can't believe it's still happening now. Um, and they and I voted yes, so I'm very happy <laughs> for them because you know, they, they realise the, the struggle of LGBTI people because of their race. Um, I don't, I don't know. I never knew any different. I never knew, you know, and as I said, I had a very white cultural upbringing. I listened to the Beatles and lots of white bands, you know, I just, <laughs> sorry. No, 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 I, this I, is amazing. That's know. why you're like, I was into the Beatles. That's some white people shit. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, yeah, we, we had like um, white music, but then we had um, African art on the wall. Yeah. So there, there was that. Um, and, you know, I, I lived in Aubrey for, or near Aubrey for a long time, for 21 years. And I would come to Melbourne to see my mum's um, South African friends. But it was a very different environment to my family because often the fathers would be very much children should be seen and not heard. So I was not allowed to interact with my mum in that time and I, I kind of felt a bit lonely then. Um, also, they, the, the children of those families, as much as I loved them, they didn't have my skin condition, so didn't realise the pain that I was in and the reason we were down there was because I was going to hospital. So they, there was that. There was that different cultural upbringing. But I think as well, they, um, like Amir, they really pushed me academically and I think there was a lot of compensating because I looked different to be the best I could be. So I'm always compensating to be an overachiever, even now, and always, um, you know, wanting to be the best. And, and also because they didn't have that opportunity. I'm the first person, you know, of, the, of, of us, of my family, and I'm an only child, to go to university. It was expected of me to, to do that. It was expected of me to do a business degree because, you know, that would get me somewhere. And I remember telling my dad, who's white, I didn't want to do it anymore and you know hated it wasn't good at it never failed a thing in my life until I did accounting awful and when I did economics when they were telling us about making models I thought we were going to make play-doh models and I was really excited about that but it was just like supply and demand that was really boring <laughs> so I had to do this this awful degree that I hated because that was what's expected of me and I told my dad I was going to change to a bachelor of arts and that was just like oh my god you're you know committing murder pretty much that I was you know he was like no you, you can't do that so I had to stay and do this thing that I hated just because of my parents expectations to get a good job which yeah well it's been all right but now I'm doing what I want to do and and that took a long time to break free because I think they didn't have those opportunities when they were you know my dad grew up in very working class England and mum in very um you know I think she would describe it as the slums in South Africa and um and uh, it, yeah it was, it was difficult but I didn't know any different yeah and also, I, I think, um, in a way, my mum is, um, is a bit, I don't see colour, I don't see disability, I don't see race. And that's well-intentioned, but perhaps in modern day, it's not cognizant of the problems with those kind of um, erasure of identities. I'm going to pause proceedings for a second, because our sixth panellist has arrived, Abe. <laughs> I'm here to state I am uh, the result of trusting Google Maps. <laughs> First time I've been here for the Sabah Centre. Appreciate your patience. Please pardon me. Don't mean to be rude. Thank you. Welcome. Um, while you're getting mic'd up, we'll continue with the conversation. I want to switch to Amir. 
um, you brought up respectability politics, you know, the conversation that you had with your parents about, I guess, their way of seeing the best mechanism to protect you was by being excellent, by being the best that you could be. Talk us through that. What were those conversations like? And, and you briefly touched on the thinking behind that from your parents' perspective. They usually weren't conversations, they're usually just instructions. <laughs> Do this, don't question it. Um, but I remember like in high school, um, I was like constantly getting into fights over racism. And I was on a scholarship at the school and it was like getting tense and the you know, principal getting involved. And um, I remember saying to my dad like, yeah, but like I haven't done anything wrong. And when I tell them everything that's happened, like surely like the other guys are gonna get in trouble. And my dad said, that probably won't happen. And I remember I was so angry at him. Like, I was just like, like, what do you mean? You know, like, like you know what's happened. Like, why would you say something like that? But obviously, because he knew, like, institutionally, like some rich white private school was not going to take my side. And he was, he was totally right. He was totally right. So like, yeah, it was basically my life, like realizing my dad was right and like being told what to do. <laughs> That's pretty much growing up. Um, <laughs> At what point did you realise, I mean, Remy gave a, an excellent example of his dad and how his dad has a PhD and all these amazing degrees, yet still experiences racism. At what point did you realise, didn't matter how good you were, you'd still come up against that? I think... I think from the beginning, because I knew, like, like, I knew I could always do well in school because like I could just do well at whatever like I had to do, but like I knew that that would never translate, that never automatically translates into basically like being treated normally by, by people. So I just, and, and I think that's why I also resented it because like the whole time I was like doing what, you know, the thing that my parents wanted, I was like, but this never works. Do you know what I mean? And that was, I think there was like a lot of resentment there and it was just like, all right, I'm doing it, but it's not gonna save me. Sasha? I just had like a brain freeze. So it was, <laughs> what was the question? Racism, tell me racism. <laughs> um, you know, because uh, this idea that, you know, if you, if you rise above it, if you, you know, um, behave in a particular way, you might be able to counter racism. But then obviously there's the realisation that it doesn't matter what you do. Mm. I mean, there's many examples. Serena Williams, for example, is like the greatest tennis player on the planet, but she still experiences racism. So it doesn't matter how excellent you are. So in your own life, at what point did you realise it doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how I behave, doesn't matter how I speak or how nice I am, mm. people will still respond a particular way? I think it came late for me because I bought into if you go above and beyond, you could probably achieve what white society gets easily. And being a people pleaser, being an A-type um, young black woman, I thought, okay, if I try really, really hard, I, I will, because I'm determined. And I think it was being a model of colour and going through the industry, because, you know, I want to be like Naomi Campbell, the black supermodel, and it was going to happen in my mind. But after audition after audition, casting after casting, and feeling rejected or discriminated against when I walked into a casting and knowing that this is going to be the experience all the time, that you're not going to make it. Like, the reality set in 
that because I'm a black woman, those opportunities aren't given to me. And then I started to, I don't know, go on this spiritual journey and start to realize, okay, well, who am I? What my ancestry is? And then started to look at colonialism and all the structures from education to government to, you know, fashion industry. They're not set up to accept people of color. Mm. So that's the problem there. And that was like, the launching point for me to start Ascension, going through all those years of trying to be an actress, a model, to express myself, be creative, um, be excellent, you're not gonna have that opportunity the way that you deserve mm. in, until you create that platform that speaks for you, that um, expresses who you are, your authenticity, um, gives you that pride and you know, opportunity to be who you are in all your cultural ancestry and awkward black girl moments. You know, um, so that, it was sad because it just took me a, a really long time. And I, you know, I was really angry at myself, like, why didn't I get this earlier? But, I, you know, being a late bloomer or whatever you want to call it, um, it's all about divine timing. And I think it's really, you know, awesome that I think in the last three to five years, you see all these people of color coming out with the digital technology, you got podcasts, you got YouTube. We're not trying to bang the door down of the mainstream. It's, it's obsolete, I think, because we've got our own platforms. Like, I'm going to say what I want to say, and this is who I am. And then you've got like millions of people around the world that are like, that's, that's me. Mm. <laughs> I identify with that. So I think it'll be interesting to see where mainstream media goes with the uprise of people of color in those narratives. I think you see it with like SBS and Viceland and you know, The Guardian with Indigenous X. They need those stories because we are the demographic. Mm. Abe, I wanna bring you into the conversation. You've missed a lot. <laughs> but um, I mean, we're at a point where we're obviously exploring this idea of when you first, at what point do you realize it doesn't matter what you do, how well you, how excellent you are, you can never outrun racism. What was that moment like for you? When did you make that realization that didn't matter what you did, people would react to you the way that they chose to? I guess you gotta, you gotta let people be people. And you've gotta identify with who you want to be first and foremost. And then knowing that you are not a threat to anybody should be the first sign. So before recognizing racism, before recognizing um, the race before you enter it, whether it be because you have talent or whether it be because um, of the environment you're in, I think at some point you get, you get to a position where you know you're not supposed to change it. You're supposed to do you to the best of your capability. And whatever comes from that is gonna be the display that is after you've done your service. Uh, so paying mind to this concept of, of, of uh, racism will eventually slow you down. But what do you do in circumstances where, I mean, I understand what you're saying about not giving it too much thought, but if you're trying to just go about your own business and the world is reacting to you differently. My goodness. First and foremost, I live in the land of whose ancestors and I have to uphold. It's like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it will mean down the track. Um, I don't know whether there will be consequences that will come with that. Um, but what's worse is knowing that I'm not where I'm supposed to uh, 
be from because racism over there is much worse than the racism that I'm experiencing over here. So for me to find a balance where I'm from, which is Africa, and here, it's almost like, okay, I would live, with, I would live, I would take this country with its racism any day, because people don't shoot at each other when they disagree. Uh, but then there's also this the this the racist disagreement that comes with the harmony of it, which means I think it should be fierce in terms of responding when you experience it, and at the same time, uh, knowing when to defend others, but at the same time realizing that the harmony of being able to agree and disagree is something that whatever work you do should be able to create further um, platforms or be or use yourself as a model so then other people can step into their greatness in terms of owning who they are and not letting it bother them. What about the burden of racism? And I only realised it when I was looking across the panel that each one of you within your work somehow addresses racism. And I'm almost thinking, is that a way of trying to make sense of it, of reconciling and figuring out your own identities? But also the burden, I mean, I think Remy touched on this idea of like, if people want to talk about race, they'll bring the rapper on. Like this expectation that you are a spokesperson for racism, of your people, of your whatever your identity is, and the pressure of having to uphold that expectation when you're still trying to make sense of your own identities. Who wants to take that one on? <laughs> Start with you, Sukjit. I don't know, these conversations like make my brain go so mushy. I don't know, I just feel like I'm like bananas in my brain. Um, yeah, I don't even know how to tackle that, bro. I don't know. I, I, don't, I actually don't know. I normally talk a lot, but I'm listening a lot tonight, which is great. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, how can you yeah. explain that? I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. Like I. I felt like when I, when I was a kid, I, all I wanted to do was be a journalist. Like I just wanted to tell stories. I was like, that's all I want to do. And there was a point when I started studying journalism, all my friends were just in, equally interested in the same things, got into the media. And I realized that the way things operated were different for me than they were for my colleagues. The sorts of stories I was supposed to be looking at were very different to my colleagues. The expectation of what I should know and educate people about mm. were different. And so it became a thing of trying to sort of, for the longest time I ran away from that identity because I was like, I'm just me trying to live my life. And I just, then I just had to reconcile that. And my way of reconciling that has just been to embrace that and kind of go, well, if I'm on this journey of making sense of my identity, I'm happy to bring people along with me. But I also recognise that it's not an expectation that every child of colour should have. Yeah. And so I want to know at what point, because it seems like with your work, yeah. you're all kind of interrogating this somehow, even if it wasn't the intention when you went into it. I think it's because like I'm trying to imagine, maybe it's hard because I'm trying to imagine my life or my career without this purpose, because I think it's become so internalised or natural or normal to be the Sikh representative. And I know a lot of people, um, like you were saying the word, like educate. Like, why do I, why do we always have to educate? And I feel like as a Sikh, like I don't, there was no other option. There was never like, I can only relate to that in my personal life. So like if I'm at a bar and this guy goes, oh, Kama Sutra, baby, that's when I'll be like, let's talk about that. Because don't know the Kama Sutra. And that's where I can kind of go, yes, in other areas of my life. But then within the work, I feel like because I haven't, you know, the previous question was, when did you realise that? I don't think I've realised that yet because I am, 
I'm living it right now and I'm and I feel like I'm in control of it at this stage. I feel like I'm in control of my story and I make sure that, yes, I've done gigs that were freaking frustrating and like I could see I was a puppet, but then I also don't have much shame left. So I do just say that I'm not your freaking, not like I'm not gonna dance for you master. Like I think, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it right now. Carl? Um, I think my work has come about because of my identity and that's okay and I can choose how much to give in a way um, and I've got sorry I've got so much to say um, there, there, <laughs> there is there's, but, there, but there's definitely that burden and that expectation to be nice and when I was abused by the taxi driver and I told him uh, he wouldn't take me because of my face apparently it would ruin his cap uh, so I wrote about it and I, I said how I told him to fuck off and then I got another cap and I made a report and I put that all in the report. But when I wrote about it, you know, people were like, but you told him to fuck off. That was worse than the discrimination you faced. So there's that expectation to be nice all the time that I can't be that angry disabled person. But there's also that expectation um, when I'm, when I am in, like when I got my educator hat on doing media or whatever, that I have to provide a backstory and I'm getting quite tired of that. And I did an interview um, recently where I was interviewed by someone who was notoriously difficult with um, marginalised people. And I got my, and I was quite worried about it, and I got my agent to write to the producer to say, these are the things that you cannot say to Carly. And I felt so amazed that I could even do that because I would always have to be, well, I'd always have to qualify why I can talk about this. You know, people would say, well, so what's your disability? Or, um, you know, how long have you known you're disabled or whatever? And, but I was there to talk about art in a dis disability context. And then, and then there's also the idea that I will answer everything because people are so intrusive. And I don't know about um, people, uh, I don't know about the racial intrusiveness, but disability intrusiveness is ridiculous. And I was doing a speech at a university and I was doing, it was about genetics. And the, the geneticists set the scene that they said, we have to be really careful that when we talk to people with visible differences, that we don't intrude. So they were really great and, and talking about politeness and these were future doctors. And so I did this talk about how I'm proud and how I'm not wanting a fix and all of this stuff. And then this woman comes up to me, she was a first year student, don't know her for a bar of soap. She said, oh look, I was gonna ask you a question while you're up there, but I wanna ask you in private. I go, here you go. <laughs> and she says to me, um, so when you have children, will you abort? And I said, that's a really personal question and we don't know each other. And she says, but is there genetic selection? And I said, yes, there is. And I said, I have written a little bit about my thoughts and conflicting, um, you know, the, the, the big conflict between, and I don't even know if I'm gonna have children yet anyway, but the doctors tell me it's ticking and all of that. But I don't have to tell this person. And the geneticist said to me after when we were in the lift, they did not realize the level of intrusion that we face because they're not dealing with that on a regular basis. So it was only when they were with me in person and I encountered a stranger that, that they saw that. So there is that. So there's so, yeah. And of course I was in a professional setting, so I couldn't tell them to fuck off like the taxi driver. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it was re it's really hard. It's re and, and you know the reaction that, like I know the reaction 
before someone's opened their mouth to me. You know, I know what they're looking at or they stop their conversations when they see me in the street or they gasp or they poke their friends and snigger and all of that. And my husband always says, I wish that not, he doesn't wish that I was abused, but I, I wish that you were abused when you were with me because it always happens on my, when I'm on my own. It never happens when I'm with him. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Amir? That's a question. <laughs> we were talking about uh, this idea of using your work to reconcile your identity and that expectation of wanting to educate and the burden of that when yeah. you're still f making sense of it on your, for yourself. Um, I guess for me, like, so the thing that helped me make sense of it growing up was music, music and comedy. So hip hop and comedy were the, like to a, a kid growing up in Australia, what digestible art form teaches you about racism or says it's okay to be angry if someone's racist to you and you're not wrong, you're not imagining it. Like that's, those are the things. So I think when I did comedy, like it was just automatic that I was, I was gonna do those, those things. And for me, the education aspect was, you know, like those things gave me like the language to explain what was happening to me. And that's what I want with my comedy. You know, like I know like young people consume it. And I think the experience for so many people with racism is they know it's wrong. They know like it's a terrible experience, but they can't, you know, they're constantly asked to explain it or justify it. And they just don't have the language to do it. Not that that will fix it, but it's incredibly disempowering to feel something and not even be able to name it properly. And the language that we're using is the language of the colonizers. So it's like, it's so hard that maybe that's why I'm like, just really fumbled today. I don't know. Yeah. What about with you, Ape? Do you ever feel, do you ever feel pressure or do you ever feel like you just don't want to be talking about race or explaining it or? Nah, not even that. It's just that, um, when the Reclaim Australia movement came out, uh, my brother and mum were watching ABC as they were discussing it. And my brother's like, oh, this country is full of races. And my mum just says to him, if you think, uh, if you want to generalise like that, do you think you would be living in this country? And I think what she was getting at is that uh, racism in this country is soft. Um, I think at some point it, it becomes difficult when, uh, when you don't know who you're fighting against, when the enemy becomes uh, a camouflage to a point where you don't recognize whether they're present in your setting or, or whether they are actually fueling um, the, the fight. So really, um, racism in this country, or even the idea of race, um, it's, 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 it's a tricky point because at some point, so much is hidden that you don't even realize it. You don't know uh, which side you're standing on. For example, the fact that they're building new prisons because they're imprisoning a lot of young Africans as well, it's not even being talked about. Uh, so really, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's realizing how, how to contribute, and at the same time, knowing that if you're gonna uh, discuss, discuss racism or its, its impact, you gotta realize the powers that be have really manipulated communities to a point of we discuss the idea of community, but we don't know what we represent as community anymore. The fact that there's uh, detention centers 
just goes to show you um, how much people can protest, but nothing can ever happen. Uh, but yet, last, was it just the day before? There was an article that came out about a, about a South Sudanese girl who, on The Guardian, says, Australian refugee. Oh, really? That makes it very, very, very complicated to realize what, what the fight is or, or, what the, or where race comes in or even where the discrimination comes in. Because you really don't know what is what anymore. It's so diluted. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm almost thinking about how we framed the conversation around race in this conversation, because obviously a lot of the experiences that we're talking about are very much in that bigoted, prejudiced kind of way. And clearly racism is very complicated. It, come, it has various manifestations. You've got systemic racism like you've highlighted within, and we see this playing out in um, some of the government policies, etc., particularly towards Indigenous Australians. And you've also got implicit bias, which people sort of do and they're not very aware of. And then several stories about, you know, people with dark skin applying for jobs with different names and being knocked back and not being allowed to rent and all that. And that is a result of implicit bias. But then there's also the racism that we're all kind of talking about, which is the interactions that people have when they see you and what they think you represent. And within that, you know, trying to make sense of who you are, given that there's these structures that have been existing long before you came along and will probably continue to. So I guess taking that on board, Remy, when you think about what you're trying to do with your work in terms of your music and what you're trying to communicate, whether it's making sense of your own evolving identity as you described it, what do you hope that young kids that perhaps are growing up in this country that are in a similar situation like you, mixed race parents, asking the tough questions, what do you hope they get a sense of when they listen to you or when they see you performing? Have you even thought that deeply? <laughs> mm. Again, I don't know, like, yeah. It's, it's, that's got to evolve as well. Like, I know this sounds like, you know, dismissive, but it, like, I definitely release music that I really would not want people internalizing, like, prior to, the last few years, you know what I mean? Um, whereas now, like, I just hope that they take the dare enough, you know? Like, that's <clears throat> that's really what it is. Because, um, I, I like, I totally believe that if you rip all this, like, shame um, and this feeling of worthlessness of any oppressed peoples, they can really do anything. As a matter of fact, you push them into a corner to make them work so hard that they will rise so far above you and create their own systems as they are doing now that that will put you to shame, you know what I mean, if they're given that opportunity. Um, but that opportunity is rare, you know, and touching on something that Abe was saying about, you know, the intrinsic, um, in, um, the nuances <laughs> of racism and how much we internalize it and things like colorism, um, things like classism, you know, come into play, start hating on each other, start, you know, tearing each other down as opposed to like, you know, rising up. And I want, I feel, I feel like that, at the end of the day, that really comes from the individual. Because anytime you put in out that self, it's, it's a reaction to your, your circumstance, you know what I mean? Like, if you're, you know, if you're hating on other black people, if you're a black man, you're hating on a black woman, 
if you're beating your child, if you're like, it's all a reaction to this shit. You know what I mean? Like it's, some of the people aren't talking about that. You know, it's because you've internalized so much that you hate yourself so much that anything around you that is like you, you're gonna lash out against, you know what I mean? And as a matter of fact, you're gonna lash out at things that are actually good for you on purpose because self-sabotage can feel easier when you feel worthless, you know? So I really hope that people, like I can help build people's self-determination, you know what I mean? Or, you know, alert them to things that really are nothing to do with them, you know what I mean? Um, but again, that, <laughs> that, that doesn't just come from one song, you know, because I was listening to a lot of rap growing up. Um, I think it, it really it comes down to the individual as well. And that's why it's so important that we've got things like what Sasha was talking about before, like creating these, these areas for ourselves where we can build each other and have so many different points of knowledge um, so that we can grow and do our own education. Um, do our own learning and unlearning, you know, um, and just make sure that it's multifaceted. Yeah. That's great. And Sasha, I very briefly just want to touch on Ascension and the idea behind it. And this, I mean, Sajit talked about it very briefly, that intersection of gender and race and the impacts that that has as well. And you've created a platform for women specifically of colour and Indigenous women to see themselves, to express themselves, and to see that they're beautiful and they can... Why was that important for you? Why was it important that you spoke specifically to women? Because I felt lost and I didn't know who I was. And as I touched on earlier about my spiritual journey, I had to really be honest with myself and go, why, you know, all the situations of going through colorism, what was that all about and the self-hate because you know, I didn't know what my blackness was and I was on that journey and going through the fashion industry and feeling like I wasn't enough because my body type didn't suit what they were looking for. So having body image problems, uh, my Aboriginality, how do I navigate that in Australia? So all these issues of trying to find out who I was and um, trying to heal myself, that's how Ascension evolved. And it was really important. I thought, okay, this is something that I don't see. I'm importing magazines from you know, the US and the UK just to see a reflection of myself. So this is backwards. And I thought, okay, I don't have it here, so create it. And it was really just from a personal journey of I don't see myself I messed up in the head, <laughs> I've got daddy issues. And how many other you know, women of color in this country are going through different experiences that you know, might be individual or collective? And I just created it, not knowing or not expecting it to be what it is today or you know, to touch certain people in the way that it has. So build it and they will come. So it was really pretty much what I was going through internally you know, trying to navigate me, who I am as a woman of colour. Um, where do I want to go? What do I want to create as a legacy for myself and, you know, for my community? Fantastic. Well, thank you for creating Ascension. Um, at this point, we're going to take a bit of a, an intermission um, and we will be taking questions from the audience. So if you've got anything that you want to ask any of the panellists, just have a bit of a think about it and hopefully they'll be more than happy to respond. 
But in the meantime, I would like to welcome to the stage a very fabulous performer, uh, Sister Zai Zander. And she is a storyteller, an educator, and broadcaster. She has facilitated workshops in Zimbabwe, Denmark, and Australia. She produces and hosts a women's and indigenous hip hop show every Sunday on 3CR, playing soul, R&B, lots of reggae and hip hop. In 2015, she founded the Pan-African Poets Cafe, a pop-up literary event where she curates in order to celebrate Africa's rich literary legacy and diverse storytelling traditions while paying respect and showing love for First Nations peoples. Amongst her career highlights from Africa, she has worked for the Harare International Festival of the Arts, one of Africa's top 10 international arts festivals as a youth arts zone consultant. I'm very excited about her performance, so please make her feel very welcome. Wow. Um, can you hear me? Are we on? We're good to go, yes. Hello, everyone. Um, I just want to first put my phone down. Tushigeiwo. Tushigeiwo. Vanokwa Aranjari. Vanokwa Kulin Nation. Tokumira Shigapanapa. Panikapeni. That's something my grandmother taught me to do whenever I was approaching somebody's land. As a way of announcing myself, I announced my ancestors as well. And it's a point of connection as well with many First Nations peoples around the world. Um, when I first came to Australia, I always found it weird that we did an acknowledgement before we actually requested the right to enter and to speak. So that's, um, that's what I was doing there. Um, now I'd like to thank you so much for setting the scene for this poem, because um, I was just taking it all in, taking everything in that you were all saying. And yeah, my brain's turned to mush. I hope I can do this. A banana brain, that's what Jin was saying, right? <laughs> you feeling me? <laughs> okay. Um, what I do is storytelling. It's poetry and storytelling. Um, so I like to mix song, poem, story, things that are kind of going on at the time. There's a principle of urgency that I think storytellers have to abide by. In order to be honest, you have to speak to the zeitgeist. You have to speak to the energy in the room. And um, also just be honest to, you know, where I've come from. I spent last week at the Australian Theatre Forum and there was like this really heated discussion that stuck with me. Um, it was a discussion that was actually came out of a, what could have been a very positive panel about intercultural performance, about us embodying differences, right, through the, the, the art of performance and being able to come to a point of understanding with one another. And then for some reason, someone in the audience stood up, yo, white men, okay, like seriously, all white men stood up and he was like, I'm sick of saying sorry. How many more times do I have to say sorry? I'm sick of saying sorry. And then shit just started, I'm sorry. <laughs> I swear, respectability, politics, yeah, whatever, okay. So then, you know, stuff just, you know, people started responding, um, elders um, within the indigenous First Nations community, arts um, practitioners started responding. My hand was flying up, but I had to just learn to shut up, you know, because 
there's a time to speak, and those are things we have to learn. Like we have to understand protocol when we're in this space too. So um, what I was left with after that, like I did eventually speak and say something because it had to be said. And it was a very interesting response because um, that was like the second session on the first day of a three-day friggin' forum. <laughs> and now you're like hanging out with these people and there's this tension because Australia has got a funny way of not talking about stuff, which is weird. I find that weird, So, which brings me to my point. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Zimbabwe. I was born one year before independence and I was sent into desegregated schools with teachers who would grade me lower because I was smart and I was a threat, right? And if I didn't have allies and teachers who would then go in and like pull those teachers up, I don't know how I would have continued, you know? So I grew up in a space where I was black, but I was being taught by my parents to speak English and to go to school and to study hard because that would get me places. So people would question whether I was even African. So other black people, right? So there are names for me, I'll get teased. And then um, you're growing up in this space and you're like feeling like a, a liberated woman and you're getting responses that are telling you to pipe down, shut down, stay in your place, don't talk too much about that, you know? So everything that you're all saying, even though I don't grow up here, I'm like, yeah, colonialism has got a funny way of finding its way into places and just kind of sticking, you know? So this first poem is something that I wrote in 2011. And I originally sang it with a Zulu love song. Um, because I wanted people, at the time I was really interested in educating. I'm um, not so much anymore. I'm like, fuck it, let's just build our own shit. <laughs> um, like Sasha said. Um, at the time I was really interested in educating, so I was really, and I was also working with a singer, I still do, a singing teacher who was teaching me about going beyond words and just connecting on a feeling level, you know, because we're human. Like we can all feel, you know, so a lot of my work those early years was just about connecting with vibration and feeling with people. Hey, okay. <laughs> so um, I stopped doing that Zulu poem because it just felt fake. I'm not Zulu, I'm Shona, and I don't pronounce it very well. So I took on Erica Badu. Uh, you know that song where she goes, I'm a recovering undercover over lover kind of thought about that, you know, when you really want to be white. I'm a recovering undercover over lover, said I'd die for you, then I cried for you. I make up words, by the way. Thought I could give up my life for you, even though you make me blue. I'm a recovering undercover over lover. Recovering from a love I just can't get over. Ejected from my homeland, I traveled far. And yes, it is far to come and just settle here, my dear. But I, I flew here, my love. 
in a hurry, in a rush, in a rush to find a place to rest, to rest right next to you. You see, I came flying high in a red metal kangaroo traversing the sky across oceans of deep blue sparkling hue. This red kangaroo bounded, leaping high, making a mockery of mere geophysical division and time. And time. I'm a recovering undercover over lover. Recovering undercover over lover. <laughs> and eventually this red metal kangaroo, well, it landed. And I landed in this land of new and ancient peoples where despite the warmth of the sun on my face and the beauty before my eyes. I constantly feel cold, alone. You see, I walked into that airport lounge with a bounce in my step. Joy and excitement twinkled in my eye and I called out your name when I caught sight of you. I called out your name, but from you I received Nothing, nothing, not even a whisper, not even a nod. Send, I'd die for you, then i cry for you. Thought I could give up my life for you. Even though you make me so blue. Thank you. Is there time for just one more? So this is, because um, i got to bring you all back now, right? <laughs> um, in 2011, I was trying to find my voice. I was trying to find, well, what kind of stories does this urban race, not quite African, now living in Australia, but apparently very African, definitely not, you know, Australian, sound like and um, I was studying very hard as a lawyer to be a lawyer I finished my degree <laughs> it was painful um, but I did it and I spent the last year when I should have been reading my international human rights law texts reading my Angelo and not going for my exams. That's when you know you shouldn't be doing something, right? Okay. Or that you should be doing something else. So I wrote this poem as a tribute to the women who, the black women writers who I admire and who I look up to because I don't quite know, I think it's what this panel is doing now is actually finding a voice for 
young Australians coming out, leaving behind a legacy of work so that people coming after can actually have a starting point. And I cannot tell you how invaluable that has been to be able to open up a text by Maya Angelou or Toni Morrison and be like, yes, that's it, that's the emotion, that's the feeling. So this is for all black women who write. I'm sure there's a song for this one, but I can't remember it now. It might come in the middle. For all black women who write, I give thanks. Just be. That's what she said to me. Then you said, just like a graffiti artist, speak truth to power. Write in order to thrive. Livicate yourself to words, sound, imagery. Embrace the courage to pen your life because it is your birthright to thrive. I didn't say survive. Black women who write, you constantly teach me how to pen bold and vivid editorial strokes. You, the scribes of word sound power, I hear your voices chanting still, encouraging me to lovingly and truthfully graffiti across whitewashed walls courageously, apparently rebelliously. Yet despite negative impressions and misrepresentations about our motivations, we black women who write know our intention is love, a radical love. Our juicy words roll over the taste buds of forked tongues, seductive, like the irresistible complement of sweet and sour, all beautifully blended into one balanced flavor. Cause we dish poetry and story out like ever so tasty and always generously, but honestly, like a truth spitting gangster mommy. You see, I too have a dream. I see color, sex, gender, writ large in stories, richly imbued with the soul of R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Cause R-E-S-P-E-C-T is something we take and make without apology. We say it loud, I'm black and I am proud. Not because we're looking to fight, but simply because we're looking to love ourselves deeply and truly. Yes, self-love is the very first romance. So I give thanks for still waters that led me to dive deeper for wisdom. And there I found Shapa, Dibi, Maya, Bell, Akua, Mahogany, and Alice, and the list goes on. Black women who write your work, permanent inks my skin. See how I walk tall and bold, like an old soul, like pyramids. I exude a natural attitude of wild endurance, resilient, because I am Sankofa, Ma'at, Radical Love, the trilogy. Thank you. I'd just like to wrap up with just a little bit of a, a vignette, like Bob Marley. Um, what's the title of that song? Rat Race. If you know your history, then you know your destiny. In the abundance of water, a fool is thirsty. Rat Race, Rat Race. 
Oh, what a rat race, hey, hey. Rat race, rat race, rat race. Rat race, oh, what a rat race, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rat race. We got a horse race, we got a dog race, we got a human race. But this is a rat race, yeah, yeah. Rat race. Know your history. Thank you. Thanks, Sister Zai. Um, at this stage, we're going to take some questions from the audience. We're running a little bit over time, so we might not be able to take too many. But if you've got a question, put your hand up and someone will come over with a microphone. Hi. Um, my name is Guido, and um, I'm a Brazilian indigenous black person uh, from Brazil and living in Australia for 15 years. And I think the PIN for organizing this is an amazing uh, event. Uh, for people of color, of, and uh, but my question is uh, going to be more. Um, I don't know if it's going to be controversial, but it's interesting to me. It's like um, Sukit. Um, she said um, that we have problems within our communities that we don't address. Like she exemplified with misogyny, um, I would have endless problems within the black Brazilian community that I know. How do we change those problems? How do we address them? I think, um, I know because we, we don't, we don't want to give voice to the races out there, but how do we, people that are enlightened or open, um, I mean, I could say black, a lot of black Brazilians I know are sexist or, or you know, misogynist, so, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of problems within our communities. How do we, because we have, we have this vision, we know better, but we can't openly criticize because we open for racists to attack us, but how can we tackle those, those, those issues within our own communities? Before, I, before I, I let you answer the question, I should also say that many of the experiences here obviously are very subjective and many of the issues that you bring up, sexism and et cetera, are structures that probably require some level of academic or policymaker analysis. Um, and so anything that is said on this panel is very much my subjective experience in how do you go and you know, enforce that into communities. But I'll let Sugjeet sort of pick it up from her perspective. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not an academic, Soz, um, but <laughs> girl of experience, even though I'm a young one, um, I still think that um, a lot of the content that I deliver, so I feel like half my job is um, spending it in Australia and talking about all the race stuff, and then half of it is working with my community and the poetry and the, and the content and the workshops that happen are two very different streams. And the content that one audience hears is very different to what a Sikh audience hears. Um, and it can, and I don't think it's as hard as we think it is. I think that it depends on if you want it or not. When it, for me, like personally, when it comes to like misogyny or like sexism or the inequality, um, one thing, like I have to really ask my Sikh brothers, is like, do you want, do you want equality? What are you afraid of? Like, I think starting with that, and then continuing on with like, 
yeah, like it is like, I know calling it out, I know that's like the buzzword nowadays, like we have to call it out, but it kind of starts with that. So like when I hear, when I get WhatsApp jokes um, about, you know, those forwards, I don't know if anyone else gets them, but I know Indians get them a lot and like my dad gets them, my mum gets them. And then like for me, it's like, well, when are you going to put a stop to those little things and those little jokes around the barbecue? Not that I have a barbecue because I'm vegetarian, but it's a really weird reference. But those jokes around the potluck, I don't know, like those things, those things can actually change lives because those, that's where I believe that's how you can prevent domestic violence. And I don't think there's any excuse. I don't think we can just say like, oh, nah, it's because I've experienced oppression. That's why I beat my wife. Like that's, like, I actually don't have any sympathy for that. I think that can also be really, like, I actually just, like, caught my breath there because, like, it's scary to say these things out loud amongst, like, people that I don't know very well and I don't know how you're going to receive it. And I think it's, um, yeah, I think it is really possible and it's, you can have, like, leaders, like, we've already got the leaders in each community and the spokespeople or, you know, what young people can look up to and, and it's not just about saying, oh, that generation's going to die, because I've heard that too, and it's not, because that gets passed down. And I meet lots of young Sikh boys who will say the exact same thing that, like, my great-granddad would have said. And it's, yeah, it's not about that. It's just about asking, can we all benefit from this? I think we can. I think even men can when it comes to all that internalised macho-ness and all the toxic masculinity and that, yeah. And it's interesting, when you first um, sent the email about, when you girls first sent the email about like what you identify as, I was like thinking, and I wasn't gonna say it, but then I was like, I feel like I always have to be alpha male, or like I feel like that's what I did for most of my life. And then I feel like we were talking about working twice as hard and wanting to be accepted. I feel like I do it because of gender. I don't do it because of race. I do it because I feel like to be yeah, I feel like I'm already taking up too much space by talking a little bit more or lowering my voice or these little things. And just, just letting, like, my guy friends know that is, like, the biggest start. Like, I think... And if you yourself believe in whatever issue that you want to address in your community, like, I think that it's just, yeah, the fact that you want to do that and then you can let all your mates know that's you can all just kind of spread like the butterflies. So <laughs> it's possible. Oh, I think we'll take, yeah, we'll take a question. Um, are you like our youngest audience member? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Assalamu alaikum, I'm in Sudan. To those that don't understand Arabic, my name is Basim from Sudan. And my question is, how do I show other people that if I'm not one mark, as in I'm not a rapper, I'm not someone that swears. I, I'm, I'm not someone that acts as a perv. How do I? No, no offense. <laughs> how, how do I show that I am African and that I am proud to be African and that I care? about my culture. Well, it seems, it seems like you've answered your own question because you bravely stood up and just owned your identity. So that in itself is a big first step. But I'll let uh, Remy actually answer that. <laughs>
<laughs> what? You really want me to do this? Wow. You're not too busy being a pervert, I mean. <laughs> Trying to think. I mean, in what uh, as hard, I mean that you're talking about in general, or because like to me you are a proud young African man. That's what you just proved. You know what I mean? And like you, that was apart from the perv part, man. That was mad inspiring. Because <laughs> um, you have like you clearly have like an incredible sense of self determination and belief in yourself. You know. How, how? Man, I wish I knew you when I was 13, man. Like, for real. Like, because that, that thing that you got right now inside of you, that, that's the thing. That's how you prove it. And these people are going to come at you and they're going to try and take that from you. And they're going to try and break that away from you because they feel powerful in themselves by doing that. And if you hold on to that thing, and you don't break, then that's how you prove it. You continue and you move forward as you. That's my advice. What do you think, Abe? I think. Am I might? Yeah. Which part? About how does he do it? How does he be his proud young African man show that? Man. Uh, the danger is trying to stand out and do it alone and then trying to um, represent your community. That's where it. I think that's where most young people lose themselves. I think you gotta, you gotta easily find out who you want to be. And as you go, allow yourself to, um, to change as the times do. But one of, one of the dangers of living out here is that it's so complicated to be a young African on these streets. August 8th, 2012, um, my brother died in police custody. It wasn't put on the news, it, wasn't, it was ruled a suicide. Uh, we took that to the chin. But every young person who ever gets put into or finds themselves in a position of uh, ever having to go to court or being in the public spaces, there's, there's this stigma that, that doesn't even belong to you. It's been, been already pre-created before you. So really, the odds, the odds against you um, should serve as motivation. Don't ever apologize for who you want to become. Mm -hmm. But who you are, which is as who you are. And continue to educate yourself, because that's power. There's so much power. Because people are dumb. Like, they're mad dumb. Like, they come in, they shoot you, and try and tell you that there's something weak about you after what you just had the bravery to come and do. That means they're stupid. And the education will give you the language, which a lot of us didn't have when we were growing up, to be able to tell them why and exactly how they are stupid. And by doing that, you hold on to yourself from what I've, the brief stuff that I've like educated myself on is the job of the conscious is not to change that other person. Your job is to let them know that they are unconscious because they have to go away in their own time and critically think about that and sort that out because that's their life, that's their problem, that's their unlearning that they have to do. But by you being a strong, educated young man that stands up for himself, as a result, you'll be teaching these stupid people how to be better. Can I just add that Kudos to your parents, because clearly, you know, you've got parents that are helping and supporting you and, you know, being proud of your heritage. And I think you've already got a wonderful foundation there. Seek out role models if you can find them in the media. I mean, you've got people here that, you, you know, if ever you 
want to make sense of it and just keep doing you. I think you're awesome. Anyone else with some questions? We might just take one more. No, we don't have no time. We, one more. We'll take one more quick question if anyone's got one. No one? No one's got a question? Great. Well, I guess we're, we're going to wrap it up. Um, Ketchy, Lucy, do you want to yeah. say something? young people coming to this and being so proud of who they are. I think it's um, everyone is really um, grateful to have all of these people in front of them, being able to drop some truth bombs. And um, hopefully we can fill more than the closet of the <laughs> Melbourne Recital <laughs> Centre. Um, one of the things that we, did, we have been talking about with the panellists is spaces like this, feeling able to come into these spaces and talk as people of colour, come into these spaces of, um, as a white person and to sit in these spaces and feel comfortable to have your opinions and the way that you see life questioned and to go back and reflect on that. So we really appreciate that you've given your time to us to have that happen. Um, yeah. Oh, also, cool out sun are going to be in the foyer. So if you want to shake it out, I know you've been sitting down for quite a while now. Literally um, shake it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, it would be really awesome if we could turn the foyer into a bit of a party to end this beautiful night. And um, I just want to say a big thank you to all of our panellists and Sister Zaya. Give them a round of applause. They've done an amazing job. Thanks for listening to Melbourne Recital Centre's Soundscapes podcast. For more information, related news, stories and events, visit soundscapes.melbournerecital.com.au.